Um, I'm, I'm back up here for, uh, for a, re a, a certain reason. Uh, I'm here to say that we are privileged to hear from Alfonso Mack. Uh, this morning he's going to be teaching as we, we're wrapping up our James series. And we like to do this every now and then to sort of explain because we know some of you may be in traditions where you're, uh, or backgrounds where you think only the pastors should teach. Isn't that, isn't that the way a church works? Pastors do this work up here. But we actually don't really fully believe that. We, we do take it seriously. We think it's a weighty task. But we don't hoard it to ourselves as pastors. So in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, uh, Paul is writing to Timothy, a, a young guy that he discipled and mentored. And he says, And the things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So there's this, um, this impulse in the New Testament to not just keep things with the leaders, but to multiply our lives and to train people up and equip other people so that they can go out and they can teach. And that is one of the ways that the gospel advances and churches get planted and, you know, the glory of God gets revealed more and more in this world. So that's what's happening today. We're excited to hear from Alfonso, one of our pastors in training. We, we know this guy's heart. We know his character. He, he loves the Lord. Uh, when, when it says that those, you know, who are qualified... The way that we understand that around here, first and foremost, is character. So to be up here and to teach the Word of God is first and foremost about that person's character, and then secondly, their, their ability. And we see both of those, uh, of those things in this guy standing behind me. So without further ado, Alfonso Mack. Hey, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate that uh, intro. Um, hey, yeah, welcome to H2O Church, everybody. I'm Alfonso, and I'm really excited to be uh, before you today diving in. Um, to the book of James. So today we'll be closing up our series, and this has been one of my favorites so far. Um, this has been a series where literally James the entire time has just been lighting us up with gospel truth. Um, and today's message is one and the same. He continues in that. But one of the things that you will notice about this message today from James is that it's just seasoned with so much grace, just so, so much grace. And so if you go back to last week at the end of Brian's sermon, um, in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, you see this part where James begins to address the rich people in the church who are oppressing the poor. And so what James does is pretty much makes it clear that these people will be judged and punished if they do not repent before God for their actions. They have been hoarding their wealth, just longing for wealth, and they've been mistreating people. And he says, if you do not repent... You will experience God's wrath. But then we see here what will be today in verses 7 through 12, and then we'll go in a little bit into verses 13 and 14 um, for the end. He begins to address the poor people. And so really what he's saying is that even though that they are being oppressed and that they are being mistreated by the wealthy, that they must remain patient. They must remain patient and wait upon God rather than take things into their own hands which could look like them invoking violence against those who are oppressing them or could be using hostile speech. He's saying that is not the correct way to respond to injustice. He's, not, he's saying that that's not the correct way. He's not saying that they can't speak up against injustice because they actually do that if you go look at the verses. They actually plead before God, and then it gets brought up in the church, so we know it got talked about. But what he's saying is that what you must do, even though you are going through these things, is you must remain patient in the Lord. Remain patient in the Lord. And so with that, I just want to open us up in some prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this morning and this opportunity to dive into your word. I pray that you would just use your words to speak to us, to enlighten us, to draw us near. Reveal yourself to us today. I ask that you would just give us a heart of patience as we look towards Jesus, the perfect Messiah, who came to save all of us. 
I pray that you would just use me and speak truth and that your spirit would fill this place. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so in about 2016, so this is a few years back, I had one of the most fun and also one of the most annoying experiences of my life, and it was at Cedar Point. Okay, so a lot of people love Cedar Point, and I know that. All right, I had never been to Cedar Point in my life at this point. I know, shame on me. I used to have people make fun of me all the time, but I'm not really from Ohio, so hey, I'm just saying. And so what we do is I have opportunity to go on this double date with my, my wife, Catherine. We were dating at the time with my best friend, Nate Locke, and a girl that he was with at the time. And one of the things that I noticed when we were on this trip is that really I was sitting here trying to impress this girl, okay? I was trying to impress her because, listen, I don't like roller coasters. I'm actually a little bit of afraid of heights. But you know what? I'm like, hey, I'm trying to win her over. This would be a good look for me. So you know what? I'm going to go anyways. I'm going to decide to go and look brave so maybe she want to marry me someday. And so, and it did work. And I am married. Yes, it did work. Um, and so I, one of the things, that was, I did end up enjoying my time. It was a lot, a lot of fun. It was a whole lot of fun. We went on this packed day in the summer on a Saturday. And the one thing, if you know about going to a place like Cedar Point in the summer, it, there's long days that you have there. We spent about eight hours there, and we only rode about two or three rides. One of the things that I've learned, and I didn't even know this, is that you have to go to a place to wait in line for about an hour to maybe even three to four hours to ride a ride that lasts only a couple minutes. So one of the things after that trip, and I even look back today, I'm like, man, you would know something. One of the most important things that we need when you go to Cedar Point is you need patience. You need patience, you need a whole lot of it. That is something I learned. And what's crazy is this is something that James is calling the Christians to as he nears the end of this letter. He's calling them to patience, especially in the face of trials and suffering. And I know that when I say the word patience, or even when I say suffering, some of us in here might just cringe just a tiny little bit. You know, you might even be a little bit frustrated right now as you might be having to wait for some things in your life. God might be calling you to wait, and I know the waiting may be painful, and it may be really, really hard. But it seems about right to say this, that in tough situations, when we must wait, it is a universal call from God that all people on this planet have to go through. You must wait for something, but especially for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Waiting for us is inevitable. You will be waiting for his return. And I know that this makes it really hard today because we live in a right now kind of culture, don't we? It reminds me of the J.G. Wentworth commercial where it's my money and I need it what? Now. Right? It's like everything that we want, we want it right now. That's the type of culture we live in. It doesn't even matter. Everything is right at our fingertips. So when we want something, we can go get it. But the minute we have to wait for it, we get a little bit impatient. We get frustrated. We get weary. We get tired. We don't like patience and waiting, especially when things are hard. Can I get an amen? Like, like it's really hard to wait. It is because we desire things right now. But I think that we don't like patience, though, because it kind of exposes something. It exposes the issues of our hearts. It exposes the weakness and the depths of who we are. Think about it. This goes from how, how we respond when we wait in line for food. Or when you have to wait for that friend who takes forever to come out of the house, which is my friends cannot stand when they wait on me, okay? Or when think about when you're waiting in traffic or when you're waiting for that next paycheck to come. The list can go on and on, but we especially get impatient when we are waiting for God, don't we? We have problems. When we have problems and issues, we struggle to let God kind of sort out our problems because we doubt sometimes that he actually can. When I think about this, the only question I can ask is like, 
How do we respond when we're waiting? How do you respond when you have to wait? But what would it look like if we waited for God patiently? What would it look like if we waited for God patiently? And so this leads me to my big idea for today. Patience in suffering. Patience in suffering is the heart response of the Christian who clings to the promises and the character of God. Patience in suffering is a heart response for the Christian who clings to the promises and character of God. And James helps us understand how we live this out in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. So if you have your Bibles, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you have your Bibles, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And so in verse 7, this is what he says. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so you may not fall under condemnation. That is a reading of God's word. You may be seated. You may be seated. And so my first point from, for this morning is this. The way that we live out our patience is to set your eyes on the coming of the Lord. Set your eyes on the coming of the Lord. You see this in verses 7 through 9. And so right off the beginning, right off the jump, James, he jumps in and he says, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers. So he comes out with this ton of, with a ton of grace for this church. Because if you go look back in chapter 4, he calls them adulterous people. So then he transitions back and he says, brothers and sisters. That's how he addresses them. And this is rightfully so because he has to start begin to tell the, the righteous people in the church who are oppressed that they must wait until the coming of the Lord. The time when the Lord will vindicate and make right the wrongs that have been done to them. This is where we find ourselves. And so the question here, though, with this statement from James is what does the coming of the Lord look like? What will it result in? What does the scriptures actually, actually say about the coming of the Lord? Well, one of the things that the scriptures kind of point to is we live in this state of an already but not yet. Where Christ has come to save us from sin and death for us to actually be with him. But his second coming hasn't arrived yet. As we wait, when the second coming comes, for the final destruction of the power of sin and death itself, where it will be gone and wiped out for good. Where there will be no more pain, no more wrestling with sin, no more suffering. And that's for those who are in Christ for all of eternity. That is the coming of the Lord. It's the return of our, of our king who is our judge and savior. And this is what he's calling them to be patient in. He says to wait until the Lord returns. And this patience he is referring to, though, is this focus on restraint. It's the capacity to have self-control internally and externally, internally and externally, despite circumstances that may arouse your passions or cause irritation. Patience is to keep on loving and to keep on forgiving despite being provoked, provocation. Patience has to do with how do we respond to the troubles we face in life. It is a state of rest and peace in all circumstances, in all these situations. This is a long patience that he's referring to in the unknown. 
That's what he's talking about. And I'm going to be real honest. This is really, really tough for me to hear. It's really, really tough for me to real, hear and even say because I don't like to wait, y'all. And I know some of y'all don't either. We really don't like to wait. We don't like to wait around for anything. And James knows this, though. He knows that the people don't like to wait. So what, did he, what he does is he helps them out by giving them an analogy. So he gives them this example of what patience looks like by telling them to go and look at the farmer. And I love this here because he re, here he re, kind of reveals some things that are important about understanding patience. And one of the things we learn about a farmer is that he is patient in things he can't control. He's patient in things he can't control. So often, we are impatient over things we actually have no control over. But a farmer, though, the waiting is a necessary part of his life work. He has to wait. He knows that he won't reap a harvest the same day he goes out and plant the seeds. This is what we see. So he has no choice but to be patient. This is the life of the farmer. And this is so convicting, though, because we have tendencies to do the opposite of wait. We tend to take matters into our own hands, don't we? That's what we like to do. We think that we know better than God. That's what sometimes happens to us, even though he's the only one who can actually change our situations. If a farmer digs up a crop before it's actually time to harvest the crop, the thing that happens is he pulls out something that's lifeless or premature. That's what happens if a farmer was to do that. So what he has to do is he has to wait and allow it to become what it's actually supposed to be. And so we see from James that the farmer understands that in his patience, there's a deep working within the soil that he can't even see. He can't see it, but he knows that there's a deep working in the soil. And this is the picture of how God uses our patience to radically transform our hearts. God uses patience and waiting to radically transform our hearts. And as we wait, we see that through the farmer, we wait for this precious fruit of the earth. So what he has to be waiting for has to be worth the wait, doesn't it? It has to be worth the wait. It has to be something that is so delightful that you know that you're going to go and wait for it. And this is so good because in all of your situations, in all of your struggle, in all of your pain, in all of your waiting, whatever it is, understand this, God is at work. God is at work. He really, really is. Romans 8, 28, I love it. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. And that verse, you think about it, even you're waiting. God's working in the waiting. And this verse, even like when you think about this verse, it's like as we wait upon the coming of the Lord, understand that this is what makes the precious fruit of waiting so sweet. Is that we get to see the coming of the Messiah for the, when he comes back. This is something that we can rejoice over. This is something we can rejoice over. Waiting upon the Lord is a gift that we don't even deserve, though. So we can rejoice in it. So my question is, what's stopping you from rejoicing in your waiting? What's stopping you from rejoicing in your waiting? Is the beauty of being with Jesus forever better and more precious than your situation? That's the question that we have to ask ourselves. Is waiting for Jesus and being with him forever so much better than what you're waiting for? If Jesus is, then the words James gives next is what we must do. And he says it, be patient and establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's what he says. Establish your hearts. The key here is to establish the heart. Establishing the heart is a strengthening of the heart. It's to be held in strength and to be rooted. It is, to be, it is in connection with patience. Being patient with the strengthened and established heart is to remain firm in the light of all circumstances. So this is a strong word, strong set of words he's using here. 
very strong set of words. It's like in the midst of the boxing match of life, it's to not waver. It's to not waver. It's to keep on fighting the good fight of faith. It's to cling to the Lord as you face those punches that are thrown at you in life, the lies of the enemy, which we sometimes go through when we're, when we're trying to trust the Lord and waiting, right? We get so impatient sometimes that we get tossed by the wind by the lies that we face. All those lies, the doubts and the fears, the lies of God, of who he is, him, maybe the lie of him not being with us, maybe the lie that he's not able to sustain you, or the lie that he will never pull through in whatever you're waiting for. To be established is to literally fight against that stuff. And so James says no to the people. He says, be patient and stand firm. Be patient and stand firm and strengthen your heart for the coming of the Lord. And so while you wait for his coming, look to the finished work of Christ's resurrection. That's the establishment of the heart. The coming of the Lord is at hand. That's what we look to. And what God is saying in his word is what we cling to. Go cling to his word. Knowing that his promises are true and that everything that Jesus has said is going to happen and he will make everything right. And this family is what it means to be established for the coming of the Lord. This should bring us joy as we wait. It should, just like it was for Paul, who says to live as Christ and to die as gain. Right? Those are some crazy words. To live as Christ, to die as gain. He's patient in it. He's established in it. He says, I know that what Jesus coming is so, so much better. It's the, I can experience anything in my life, any suffering, any trial, any situation, and know that if whatever I'm asking for never happens, or if it takes ages to happen, I know that the coming of the Lord is so much more delightful. I know that it's so much more delightful. We're called to be patient, y'all. We are called to be patient as we wait for the Lord. And then James transitions, and then he says this as he continues in verse 9. He says, do not grumble against one another, brothers. Do not grumble against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. We are also called to be patient with one another and not grumble. The word grumble here means sigh or groan or even murmur. This is what he's saying. This is a practical outworking of a patient heart is to not grumble against one another. Isn't that crazy? That's real convicting, y'all. It really, really is. This is what he's getting at. This is a practical outworking. And he's, points, he's pointing to how a patient heart focused on Christ and his return is what leads us towards being patient with each other, which is a huge struggle. But sometimes what we have done, and this is, this is hurts, it's like we become so self-righteous sometimes that we don't even want to be patient with other people's flaws. And sometimes in our frustrations with maybe our relationships, maybe our marriages, maybe you're frustrated about your dreams happening, or maybe you're frustrated about your allergies, or you're frustrated about being sick, you're frustrated about COVID and the response in the nation and everything like that. What would we do? We tend to grumble and we tend to complain towards other people. We take the pressures in our life out on other people. And these are the words that he is writing to a church of people who were being oppressed and in their frustrations, they were complaining about their brothers and sisters in the faith. It's like, why would we go and complain about brothers and sisters we're going to worship with for eternity? Why? But what he's doing here is he's really going back to the taming of the tongue, something that we don't like to even talk about. That's real hard because there's a lot of stuff that come out of our mouth. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. But he's talking about that because in their anger and frustration, this church that he's writing to, in their impatience and suffering, all they did was just grumble. 
They grumbled. And sometimes this is us when things aren't going the way that we want to. And so we begin to grumble towards one another. And once again, family, this is a heart problem. This is a deep, deep heart problem. Because listen, there's a fight going on all around us. There's a fight going on deep within you. And the first instinct is to do what in a fight in one stuff's heart? It's to grumble and complain. It's to attack other people. Instead of being patient for the return of Christ, we attack to alleviate pain. We attack to alleviate pain. But that never actually gets it done. Why? Because we still feel empty. There's this empty pit in our stomach that only Christ can fill. And when we go and attack in the pain, it doesn't help. Even after you complain. Isn't that crazy how you can go complain and you still feel upset? It's wild how that works. And it's crazy because our grumbling and our impatience actually reminds me of a group of people. And it reminds me of the Israelites. It reminds me of the Israelites. These people decided that they wanted to go and grumble and complain to Aaron and Moses in the wilderness after God freed them from slavery. So God proved that he can provide for them, that he can protect them, and they went and they groaned about their situation. Things got a little bit hard. But what was really at the heart of the people's grumbling? What was really at the heart of the people's grumbling? They didn't trust God. They didn't trust God. So they took it out on Moses and Aaron, saying, why would you leave us out here to die? We'd rather just go back to slavery. But you complained in your slavery too. It doesn't make any sense. And they even complain about God as well. And this is what at stake is at stake in our grumbling against one another, that we don't trust in God's sovereignty. That's what's at stake. Or we don't trust in his promises to take care of us in all circumstances. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, one common sin in our waiting, it's the sin of grumbling. It's easy for us to minimize this and view it as a little thing. We think if we were in charge of our lives, we would be better sovereigns. If we embrace the theology of the sovereignty of God, then we would say that our grumbling is against God and his sovereignty. We are dissatisfied in his plans. That's what he says. And James knows this, knows that this is a serious problem for the Christian, the Christians that he's writing to, which is why he has to say it. And this is something that I even see in my own heart, which is literally why I was weeping over this text as I was studying it this week. Because I understand the depth of what he is saying here today. I understand it. And it makes sense why he tells them to literally understand that the judge is at the door. He wants them to understand something. It's to look towards the seriousness at which God sees our sin. Even the ones that we might think that don't matter as much, just like complaining and grumbling. Because the judge is at the door. So we must repent of this sin in our speech that we may not be judged. And I know that those words are really piercing for the heart. But what comes next actually helps us in our journey towards a patient heart, which leads me to my second point. Set your eyes on the prophets and the servants of the Lord. Set your eyes on the prophets and the servants of the Lord. So you see this in verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. This is a comforting verse. I don't know about y'all, but it always feels good to hear when someone else understands what you're going through, I, it feels real, real good when, they can, when, you can, when people can resonate with you, doesn't it? A lot of times what happens for us when we're going through tough times is we think that we're alone. We don't think that people understand us. And it gets complicated because what happens when we get in that place, we get afraid to actually voice what's going on in our life. Or we get even more angry at God as if he isn't even there with us or that he can't even help us or that he doesn't know what we're going through. This is what happens for us. But here, James, being a loving leader, being loving, 
He wants to bring them some comfort to remind the people of their suffering and patience. Hey, the prophets of the Lord faced that as well. And so which prophets actually suffered with patience? There's a few different prophets in the Old Testament who did, but some are like Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel. That's just a little bit. And what's wild is Hebrews 11, uh, verses 32 to 38, actually tells us what the prophets spoke about, about God. They actually didn't even get a chance to see in the next generation like we did today, and that was namely the coming of Jesus. They literally went out and were fighting for something that God had promised, and they didn't even get a chance to see it. And James says something interesting here, which is, makes me wonder, why does he actually bring all that stuff up? Like, why would he even mention the steadfastness of Job or the prophets? It's because steadfastness is the endurance. Steadfastness is the endurance. It's the ability to keep going in the pain. It's the ability to keep going in the pain. It's patience with a strut. It's kind of like walking out your patience. That's kind of what steadfastness is. It's walking out and enduring the pain and affliction. Let me tell you, a lot of these people that he's referring to, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, went through some pain. If you actually go study the history, some of them died for their faith. Some of them actually being sawed in half. Isaiah was sawed in half. Or Jeremiah, he was hated by God's people. He was called to go give them a message and preach the gospel, but no one listened. Think about that. Having this call to go literally from God to go preach, and people don't want to listen to you, and then you go die for it. That was him. Or to even go look at Job. He lost everything. He had a lot, and he lost it all, everything that he owned. But one of the things we see, though, in Job is that he never actually stopped pursuing God. He endured. He kept going. He endured even when he lost everything, even though he was a little self-righteous. And he questioned God. He was impatient. He complained. But one thing you never see, even in that stuff with Job's life, is he never actually abandoned God. He kept seeking God. And this is what it means to be blessed. It's to remain steadfast. That is what it means to be blessed. And that is actually scary for some of us in here, especially because we may actually be confused about what a blessed life is. And we might look at having a blessed life as only having good health and good wealth. Some of us might view it that way. But here it says being steadfast in the faith is holding on to Jesus. That is what is being blessed. Being steadfast in the faith, holding on to Jesus, is being blessed. Why? Because being steadfast in Christ with an established heart doesn't fade like wealth and health do. Paul says outwardly we're wasting away, but inwardly we're being renewed. Our bodies are wasting away. You will get old. You will die. You won't take all your money with you. But being established in Jesus literally lasts forever. So having Jesus and being rooted in him and his promise to live with him is a sign of a blessed life. That's it is. And it may be tempting for many of us in here in suffering to ask ourselves this one question. Is this even worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Is, is clinging to the gospel in Christ worth it? James answered this by saying, if it's not worth it, then why would the prophets go and die for it? If it's not worth it, why would the prophets go speak in the name of the Lord and literally die for him? Why would Job keep seeking God in his doubts if following God isn't worth it? Or, hey, let's look even further and look at the apostles like Paul, Peter, maybe even Stephen, some who were crucified upside down, stoned to death. If it's not worth it, why would somebody even go be boiled alive for a king? Like, why? If he isn't worth the suffering. But he must have been because they actually held on to something deeply, and they did. 
They held on to the beauty of the gospel. This is what the people did. They held on to the beauty of the gospel that has been promised to us by God. Which leads me to my third point. Set your eyes on the Lord's character. Set your eyes on the Lord's character. So in uh, the second half of verse 11, going to verse 12, he says, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's so sweet to my ears, y'all. It really, really is. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so you may not fall under condemnation. Listen, the outcome of Job's patience was compassion and mercy from God. That's what he got in return. And it displayed itself in God being patient with Job. Job's complaining and questioning of God could have called God to actually destroy him. It could have, because Job was ungrateful. But yet God displays an ocean full of grace. Just sweet grace. That's what God does. And compassion and mercy and undeserved kindness. This is what God does, y'all. He is so good, even while we're impatient. Even while we are impatient. And at the, at the end of Job, we get a picture of this working. The work that God does in suffering and patience and waiting. What we see in, in Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, this is what Job says at the end. He says, I have heard the rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. That happened at the end of Job's life. And then guess what happens next? God then restores him and all of his fortunes. Double. That's what God does at the end of it. So what we see is that God in our impatience, in our, in, in our complaints, in our suffering, in our pain, he's wanting his grace, compassion, and mercy to reshape our messed up hearts. That's what he's want, just like he did Job. So that in the end, we'll be presented with the great glorious rewards of eternity in heaven with him. That's what he's doing. This is the character of God. This is what we must look to. And praise God, y'all, that he gave Jesus. Praise God that he gave Jesus. So that when we repent and we believe in him and we turn and follow him, we follow this risen king. We get his righteousness imputed to us so that when we go at the end of our lives, we get to stand before God and spend eternity with him. This is a good text that we should be literally praising and weeping over. This is it, y'all. This is really it. He is compassionate and merciful in suffering. Why? Because he wants to teach us something in it. He wants to teach us something in it. That's why. So while we are patient, he's trying to awaken our soul to his magnificence, just like he did Job. This is what he's doing. This is God's purpose in the sufferings, as you see in verse 11. It is to transform your heart by his compassion and his mercy to make you spotless and blameless before him. So that the day at the end of your life, you are drafted, grafted into heaven with Jesus forever, even upon his second coming. Or even if you die today. This is what he is doing in all of it. <clears throat> the purpose of the Lord in the midst of suffering is to let you know that patience shows, it, shows itself as recognizing that the suffering isn't the end of your story. 
Suffering isn't the end of your story. It's not because God will transform your life and situation forever and permanently upon Christ's coming and us being with him revealed in glory. And this is what the prophets held on to. That is what they died for. So the question for all of us in this room, myself included, is will we endure until the end? Will we trust until in the promises of God until the end? Will we be patient until the end? Or will we try everything that we can to bring salvation to our lives today on this planet by things that will actually pass away? Will we wait for God's salvation? Or will we try to use other means as temporary fillers for something that isn't going to get it done? If you wait patiently your whole life for something you ask God for, would Jesus and what he did in the gospel on the cross be enough to keep you? Would it be enough to keep you joyful? Would it be enough even if you were suffering physically in your body and you prayed for a thorn to be removed like Paul did? Or if you prayed for a relationship to change and it doesn't, would knowing Christ be enough to sustain you? Or would your impatience in God not giving you what you want cause you to run away from him? Will it cause you to complain and grumble at how God doesn't provide? Let me say this. God giving us compassion and mercy through Jesus should be enough to hold on to. It should. It really, really should. It should be enough to keep us patient and joyful our entire lives. And I'm not saying that you won't struggle with this. I'm not saying that you won't, because I definitely do till this day, even as I'm up here preaching. But will you seek Jesus and look at God's character like the servants did? Will you? And so as we transition and get ready to close, I just want to read verse 12 a little bit and just talk a little bit about it. So verse 12, he says, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so you may not fall under condemnation. This verse seems really out of place, seems really confusing. But I just just want to make a quick note, okay? Essentially, what he is saying is he's calling the people to integrity in their speech despite circumstances. He's calling them to integrity in their speech despite the circumstances. So it's like, will the people actually be people whose words are trustworthy even in suffering? Will will, Will it be trustworthy even in the midst of suffering? Even when you're waiting patiently? Will we be people who, like Christ, remain true to his word of going to die for us even though he was in agony and in pain in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was in pain, but he actually remained true. So will our yes be yes and our no be no? Will we stand firm to Jesus even if stuff is hard? Will our speech reflect a heart-level transformation that God has done in our lives? That's essentially what he's saying in verse 12 in a nutshell. And so really quickly, I want to last end on one point, and it's this. Prayer must be a part of our longing for patience. Prayer must be a part of our longing for patience. So in verses 13 to 14, it says this, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And so in the end section in verses 13 to pretty much 20, he talks a lot about prayer, especially within the community of faith. And so if you want a little bit of a more in-depth teaching on verses 13 to 20, I actually preached on this in the summer, last summer, in our One Another series. So if you go online, you can go or on YouTube on our channel, you can find that more in-depth teaching on verses 13 to 20. But here, what I want to end on is this, is that one of the ways that God is working in our patience is through prayer. 
It's through prayer. It's through prayer. So we must wait upon God through prayer. Prayer is our lifeline before God's throne, y'all. It really, really is. Prayer is a place where we sit before God and we connect with him and we wait for him and we rely upon his sovereign hand. And in verse 13, he says, if anyone is suffering, do what? Let him pray. So he's connecting it all together for us. This is what James is doing. Okay, he wants us to have a life of prayer, especially as we wait upon what? The coming of the Lord, being patient in the suffering. That's what he is doing. And so what we must do is be people who approach God daily in prayer that he would literally sustain and give us all we need so that we can be patient until the end. And then we must also be people, which he talks a little bit about in verse 13 to 20, who would pray for our brothers and sisters that we can last long in this thing. This is what we must do. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this great word that you've given us. Thank you for Jesus, that he came and died for our sin. Thank you that only in him can we have true life. Thank you that you are a God who sustains and holds on to us. Father, I ask that you would just use us for your glory, that you would give us patient hearts, established hearts in the truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus and who he is, that we might literally endure until the end. God, you have been faithful and, have, and will always be faithful. So I pray that you give us strength to hold on to your words until the end of our lives. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.